Research is really important because by definition, it's the only way to get new knowledge. There's so much that isn't yet known that it's just a cool time to be in science. I think at the end of the day, what really gets us out of bed in the morning is just the curiosity, trying to understand things we didn't understand the day before. Welcome to REACH, the podcast that tells the stories of researchers, their studies, and how their work impacts you and the world you live in. I'm Cole Cullen. And I'm Beth Bamford. This is one in a series of episodes where we're going to explore the work being done at Penn State relating to the coronavirus. Beth and I are working from our homes. For this episode, we recorded the interview using video conferencing software and laptops. Typically, we would be in a soundproof studio using professional microphones. But we're going to do our best with what we have. I think it's important to point out that you said soundproof studios. Our homes are not soundproof. We are working at home with children, husbands, wives, Dogs. significant others, garbage trucks driving by. But we are at home and we are safe. Cole interviewed Nita Barty from Penn State's Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics. She researches human movement and behavior, and that ties directly to why we are all staying safe in our homes right now. Hi, I'm Nita Barty. I'm an assistant professor of biology, and I'm in the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics here at Penn State. And my research focuses on the links between human movement and human behavior and the spread or prevention of infectious diseases. As far as what's going on in the world today, how does your research tie to it? There's two really relevant projects that I work on, and one of them has to do with how human movement at the population scale impacts the transmission of measles. And the reason this is relevant is because measles is a directly transmitted respiratory virus, and we are able to understand how human movement plays a role in both the transmission and the prevention of that virus. And the other project that I think is relevant here that I work on has to do with hendrovirus. Hendrovirus is a bat-borne virus, um, and we have seen it spill over in Australia from bats to have um, implications in human health. So we're working on how we can prevent that from happening. So how do we prevent bat viruses from spilling over into the human population. Coronavirus is, this particular coronavirus is a novel coronavirus in the human population. And so it had to come from somewhere. And in general, when we see that happen, it's a virus that came from wildlife. Whenever you say human movement, what does that mean? So human movement really means a variety of things. Um, human movement can mean the individual movements that are happening kind of within a location. And when I talk about that, that contributes to what we think of as local transmission. And the other side of that is the human movement that is longer distance and connects populations. That's also an important kind of movement that we need to understand to understand how pathogens move through human populations. And that type of movement tends to be important if we're thinking about the introduction of a pathogen from one population to another. Whenever you say you research human movement, what does your lab look like? What does your hands in the dirt <laughs> look like? We have a number of different ways of collecting data for how people move. And there are some kinds of data that are 
relatively easy to access that measure different scales of movement. So, for example, if you go into the census data for the U.S., um, you can find data on where people have moved in the past 10 years. And that's important for some things. That's less important for a pathogen with maybe a 14-day transmission period or a 14-day infection period. So you've probably also heard a lot about using mobile phones to understand human movement, to track mobility. We do a combination of these kinds of things. So we look at how people move along the infrastructure within that population. Sometimes that's roads, sometimes it's public transit. And we look at how people are moving at large scales. And then one thing that we use to do that is satellite imagery. So there's a number of different types of satellite imagery that passively survey the earth and give us information on what the populations that they're capturing and imaging are doing. And it gives us movement data on a large scale. But the biggest benefit of using passive surveillance open access data is that you can quickly and easily access and share the data, but you can also start looking at an area before whatever the disturbance that you're looking at happens. Right. So whatever that was, you can actually go back in time with passively collected data, like satellite imagery, and see what the population was doing before it was disturbed and compare it to what's happening now. For more active types of data collection, you usually don't start collecting data until you know something's happening. Right now, I am interviewing you over the laptop. You're in your house. Beth is sitting in her house. We are living a completely different lifestyle because of what's going on with the coronavirus. How has your research or the type of research that you have done, how has that informed how we are being asked to live today? For this particular outbreak, we are relying heavily on behavioral interventions because there are no pharmaceutical interventions. Specifically because this is a novel coronavirus. We don't have a vaccine, we don't have drugs, we really don't have any pharmaceutical interventions. So what we do have are really time-tested public health interventions that, um, that are rooted in changing human behavior. You guys have probably heard a lot about this idea of flattening the curve. And that curve that we're talking about is the number of new infections over time. And flattening it means fewer infections per unit time. So with this particular virus, what we're worried about is the severe cases that need medical help, that need um, either hospital stays or intensive care treatment. If we can keep those numbers per day below the capacity of our healthcare facilities, we won't crash the system and we won't have preventable deaths occurring. But the minute we exceed that, the minute we have more people needing ICU beds and hospital beds than we have, we're going to start seeing an increase in the number of deaths that would have otherwise been preventable. So what we're trying to do right now is slow transmission to prevent that from happening, simultaneously ramp up the equipment and capacity in hospitals and other healthcare facilities to be able to manage more cases so we don't have those preventable deaths occurring. And give ourselves time to prepare for the other sort of byproducts of this outbreak, right? So we need to increase capacity of what we have, and we need to develop things that are new. So we're buying time right now to do those things 
by hopefully drastically reducing transmission that's happening before we can do that. I talk to my kids and I try to explain, no, you can't have your friend come over because we don't <laughs> we don't know who his parents were hanging out with or mm-hmm. who their their friends, you know, and it's got to be a struggle. Is it a struggle for you to convince people or maybe it's not even your job to do the convincing but i would imagine it's a it's a struggle to convince people to change their behaviors don't tell me i have to stay home i'm gonna go where i want to go is that do you find that a challenge so the idea of balancing individual preferences or what we think of a lot of times as individual rights with a greater good or a community benefit becomes a difficult equation for people to to really do themselves, particularly when they're hearing things about how other people are saying that maybe this virus isn't really that severe. And particularly for this virus, that has become dangerous misinformation. There is a segment of the population for whom this virus will not be severe if they become infected. And that is um, luckily a, a large percentage of the population. However, because these infections that are relatively mild are asymptomatic, so people who are infected and they are transmitting the infection, they're transmitting the virus, but they are not showing symptoms and they may not even know that they're sick. Those people can be out and about feeling great and giving this virus to other people. And the people who they give this virus to may be people who are in very high risk categories for severe outcomes. The issue of really everybody needing to stay at home and act as if they might be infected and act as if they might be infecting somebody who could end up in the ICU is the biggest challenge with changing behavior for this particular outbreak. How can I be infected with something that could be fatal if I feel completely fine? And, you know, we're trying to tell people that you absolutely could be, or you could be susceptible to it and you could be interacting with somebody who feels completely fine, who is transmitting the virus to you, and you might end up in the ICU. We know something about risk and predisposition, so pre-existing conditions um, with regards to um, respiratory illness or um, age, but it's not a perfect match. We are seeing people who are relatively young and relatively healthy present with severe symptomatic cases um, of this virus. And so, you know, we, we know something about the overall patterns, but really, guys, this could be anybody. Did you see this thing coming? Whenever, you, whenever you're planning for the worst case scenario in your studies, you're working with models and what ifs. But this thing that we're living right now, did you see this coming? Most epidemiologists will say that it was a matter of, of when, not if. And so you'll hear politicians say, there's no way we could have seen this coming. We never saw this coming. How could we ever have predicted? And I, and I think that that's probably misleading. So for the most part, we have a lot of pandemic preparedness. We have a lot of theory and modeling that informs us on the likelihood of these scenarios and how to manage them. And I, I think that there's a good opportunity to look back at this outbreak, particularly the early stages of it, and look at the gaps in communication between science and politics, and particularly the people who were implementing policy or lack thereof early on. 
With physical distancing, the effects of our current efforts will be visible two weeks into the future. So, you know, it's a little bit like going to the gym. You don't see immediate results, but once you start increasing your fitness, you start to see the results of that sort of with some lag. The other thing that's important that I'll, I'll use the same analogy for is we're not going to go back to the way things were. So we have to get used to this idea that there will be a new normal while we're settling into this and understanding more about this outbreak. If we go back to the way we were in two weeks, what we're going to see is everybody that we protected during these few weeks by not spreading the outbreak is still susceptible and still vulnerable, and we'll see exponential transmission when we resume normal activities. So what we want to do is find a new normal. So we're still reducing our contacts and reducing transmission to make use of the time that we've bought ourselves and to maintain a lower rate of transmission than we would have if we lifted all behavioral interventions. So that's almost like if you go, if you start, if you start working out and you achieve a level of fitness that you like, you have to keep up with some sort of maintenance. You can't just stop and go back to sitting on the couch and expect to maintain your level of fitness. And so we're going to have to sort of keep up with it. We're going to have to keep up with social distancing for a while. And it may not always look the way it looks right now, but we're heading towards the new normal for this foreseeable future because we really need to protect the most vulnerable members of our population. And that can only happen if the least vulnerable members of the population are fully on board. We have to stop being selfish with our decisions and start realizing that every decision that we make affects us, affects everyone that we interact with, and everyone that they interact with. And visualizing that is really going to give people an idea of these exponential growth um, transmission processes. So speaking from a research perspective, what we're seeing right now with this level of globally coordinated behavioral interventions um, that are happening separately in different nations, but really are unfolding along a, a timeline here in front of our eyes. This is similar to a, a massive behavioral experiment, the likes of which we've never seen. We have never seen behavioral interventions um, and physical distancing at this scale. And not just in my lifetime, but really, we've never seen anything like this. So this is going to have an impact on influenza. This is going to have an impact on whatever it is that, that people are normally transmitting, right? So norovirus, rotavirus, all the little coughs and colds that, that kids have that they bring home. I think a lot of what we're going to learn from this, we haven't even seen yet. I think that there's a lot of really important work to be done merging some of the, the separate fields that come together at the interface of infectious diseases. Um, my background specifically is a complete mix of um, anthropology, biology, epidemiology, all these things that sort of converge onto, I think quite conveniently, infectious diseases and understanding the dynamics of disease transmission and prevention. So a lot of the physical distancing interventions and restrictions that we're seeing now 
have come out of epidemiological research and theory and applications. And so there's an immediate application for the work that we do in regards to generally in outbreaks, right, when you need rapid response. I think one of the big things for me about why this is such an interesting and important field of study is that more than ever now, we're seeing how immediately it can have an impact on the well-being of human populations. Thank you for listening to REACH. All the episodes of REACH can be found on our website. Please consider making a contribution to WPSU so that we can bring you content like this. Visit wpsu.org donate. Thanks.